So today we are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. If you'd like to follow along in your own Bibles, we are going to be in Matthew 18, starting at verse 12. And uh, after a heavy sermon like last week, where we talked about uh, God's regard for children and uh, his strong uh, actions or opinions against those that would harm children, it'd be nice to be able to say that this week is going to be a lighter sermon full of, you know, butterflies and rainbows. Uh, but it's not. You could probably tell from the, the, uh, the Old Testament and New Testament readings that today is about conflict and, uh, and how Christ te- uh, teaches us to deal with conflict, particularly conflict between uh, brothers and sisters uh, or brothers and brothers or sisters and sisters in Christ. And in between, if you remember last week, we talked about the passage, you know, if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, it's better for them to have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the ocean. Jesus transitions from that teaching about children to the teaching about other lost sheep that are wandering, other little ones that have decided to to wander down the path of sin. And the transition he makes is his little parable, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And it's this parable about the wandering sheep. And he says this, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep, and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for that one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. And in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing to have any of these little ones, and is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus teaches this little parable here, he ends it by saying that, that uh, it's not the Father's will that any of these little ones should be lost. And when he uses that phrase, little ones, that's how he refers to children in the passage beforehand when he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin. And I think that's an important little connection because then as he goes into this idea of your brother sinning against you or your sister sinning against you and they kind of wander off, You see in this passage of of how to deal with those who have sinned against you that they're also kind of considered in the mind of God a little one, a child of God who's wandered off. Now, they may not be a child in a biological sense, but they're a child of God and they've wandered off. And so really this is kind of a little brilliant bit of wordsmithing between the two passages about how God feels about children and the treatment of children to how he feels about those who are also his children who may be adults who have also wandered off and how we should treat those who have wandered. And so then he goes on to say this, right? He, he transitions right into this other passage in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, then you have won your brother over. But if you will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses which is an Old Testament standard for this. It's testified as being true. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two or three of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Jesus transitions from this parable about the lost sheep 
and leaving the 99 to find the one, to giving us this kind of formula, if you will, about how to deal with folks who have chosen to wander into the place of sin. And in this, he, he makes an assumption here that you, uh, he puts the reader in the place or the listener in the place of the one who has been sinned against. But let's be honest. I think all of us who have been in conflict know that it's not as simple as just one person sinning against the other usually. There's usually something more that's going on there. There's oftentimes kind of a back and forth. But this is what he does. He gives us this formula, and I believe the reason why he gives us this formula is because if any of you have ever been involved in a conflict with someone you care about, and particularly in some place like the church, which is relational. The church is meant to be relational. And so whenever there's conflict in the church, it hurts more than, say, a conflict oftentimes at work or in other places because there's not that same relational expectation in other places. And so it becomes much more personal, and you can't avoid that. It just is what it is. If we're going to be a church, we're going to have to be willing to love. If you're willing to love, then when that gets broken somehow, it hurts. And so we have to kind of decide, are we willing to go through the times of hurt in order to be in the places of love? It's kind of like marriage, you know? Those of you who have been married uh, can, will, will be able to testify that not every day is great. Not every day is awesome. There are days when, you know, you know in this marriage that there's going to be pain, but you choose to, to go through that pain, through that process, so that you can be in that place of love. It's kind of the same thing with the church. And the truth is, when it comes to the, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible is full of conflict. It's one big story of humanity's conflict with God. And it begins in the Old Testament. And you see, you know, it begins with Genesis and you see the very first conflict that takes place after the, the fall of man is this conflict between Cain and Abel, where one is murdered. And it continues on through the Bible. Noah had conflict, which leads to the flood. God had conflict with humanity, which also led to the flood. You have uh, you know, King uh, Moses, if people have been through the Moses study last year, Moses is just one long conflict with the people of Israel. He brings them out of, out of slavery from Egypt. And it seems like they're just constantly arguing with him and, and, and being upset that they don't like how he brought them out. Uh, we're going through the life of David. David starts out, you know, this bright, shiny hero, but ends up in deep conflict uh, in, through most of his life, which ends up defining David, the end of David's life. Pretty much every hero in the New Testament is deeply flawed, except for one, which of course is Christ. And even in the New Testament, you get conflict. Like we just read, the Apostle Paul, probably considered by many people to be the second most important person in history. Because Jesus gave us the message of salvation and hope. It's the Apostle Paul that took it all across the Mediterranean world. And yet, this guy who is revered, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, falls into a severe conflict with a guy named Barnabas. Barnabas, whose name, uh, somewhat ironically, means the son of encouragement. The Apostle Paul couldn't get along with the very son of encouragement over this fellow John Mark. And there's like different opinions, who was right, who was wrong in that conflict, but that's somewhat irrelevant. The point is they had the conflict, and it was such a sharp dispute that the team of Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways. Also, if you read the book of 2 Corinthians, if you want to read kind of an interesting book that takes a, a serious turn around chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul is writing the church in Corinth, he is at serious odds with this church that he had planted. And it's the same with the book of Galatians. There's a part in the book of Galatians that a lot of our translations kind of 
tone down when he says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? When in the Greek, what he's really saying is, you stupid Galatians, who has bewitched you? you? We brought you the gospel by which you're saved by grace, and now you've gone back into law. You big dummies. It's a book of conflict. If so if you want to read a, an interesting, you know, kind of snapshot of this relationship between a church that he had planted. So the Bible is full of conflict. And it's just the way that it goes. The Apostle John, he also had some conflicts. He dealt with false teachings. He was combating these false teachings. You read particularly in his letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So the point is, I suppose, is that in spite of having one spirit, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord over all, there's still enough of us that gets into the process of unity that is given to us by the Spirit of Christ to mess it up. And that's just the way it's been. It's been that way. You, you find it in the Scripture. You find it throughout history. You know, you're, taking, you're taking, we have the same Spirit. We have the same baptism. We have the same Lord. But we bring into the church our unique sin. We bring into the church our unique baggage. And I know a lot of us don't really consider the fact that what we bring into the church is sometimes harmful because we don't really even realize what we're bringing sometimes. We don't even realize the hurt that we're bringing into it. You know, you've probably noticed there are folks that will kind of bounce from church to church to church to church, and they'll be upset. Every church isn't quite good enough to meet what they think is the standard of what a church should be. And from the outside looking in, very often you just know that these folks are taking their same hurts and dysfunction from one place to the other. And it's not the churches that are the issue. I mean, churches are dysfunctional in general, in a loving kind of way, just like a family is. But, but you have, you know, these folks that kind of bring these, also these dysfunctions in, and they never deal with them. So they just go from one place to another, carrying these burdens from one place to another. And every time they come into a church, they bring that dynamic. So again, the church can be a very loving and relational place, but because it's relational, it can be very painful sometimes. And we'd like to think that we can grow through it. I know as, as a believer and as a pastor, I, I sometimes think, you know, conflict is really kind of a way for us to evaluate who we are, what we believe, what's important to us. Realize a place with humility where we have caused some problems in the relationship and work our way through it. And in the process of working our way through it, we grow deeper, we grow more humble, we grow more aware of what our, what's our little weirdness, because we all have our own little weirdness. We become more aware of it. We're able to uh, seek forgiveness and offer forgiveness. But it seems like every generation has to relearn these lessons again and again and again. They just, it doesn't stay and stick. It's relearned over and over and over again. And this is one reason why I love church history. The thing that I find interesting about church history is there's nothing new under the sun. There's no conflict that a church has today that it hasn't already had multiple times throughout history. When I was a young, when I was, just came out of seminary, I've told you that, that the kind of churches that hire people that are just out of seminary are usually the churches that are broke and dysfunctional. And the only people they can get to even come is some young guy out of seminary just looking for any kind of job to support his family. And you'd like to think it's way more spiritual than that, wouldn't you? Eh, it's a little bit. There's, some, there's prayer that goes into it. But the fact is, these broken, poor, these broken, dysfunctional churches can't afford 
uh, a pastor that is like able to, to take them with experience because the experienced guys very often are like, I'm not going to go into this place. And so they bring the least experienced people into the church to take care of the biggest problems. And that was my experience. I walked into a church when I came out of seminary that had just had a big church split. And it was a Baptist church, but they had a big church split over the charismatic gifts. Uh, you had a group that was led by uh, a music minister's wife that was very charismatic and wanted the church to become kind of more Pentecostal. Then you had this group that was more conservative, what you would consider traditional Baptists. They weren't really into that. And there was a lot of conflict. And if you want to just kind of put it in a, in a nutshell, what happened between these two groups, they stopped loving each other. When you stop loving each other in a relational organization like the church, you're doomed. And by the time I had gotten there, the more conservative group had left because they saw the writing on the wall. They weren't going to be able to uh, win uh, with this, with the, given that it was the music minister's wife that was uh, on the other side. But to be fair, that conservative group was pretty rough too. And when I got there, the people were traumatized. And I showed up and they're saying, well, here's the new pastor. He'll have all the answers. And I was like, you know, 29 and had been a pastor for about five minutes. But what I was able to do is look at church history, and I was able to tell them, you know, throughout church history, this issue of the, care, of the more Pentecostal, this has come up time and time and time and time again. It's nothing new. Pentecostals think that they kind of rediscovered the charismatic gifts in the Azusa Street Revival, which took place in like, I think it was 1917 in the Los Angeles area. But that's not true. You read, you read throughout church history, there are these, there are these outbreaks or these, these leanings towards a more you know, Pentecostal type of, of, uh, of worship and people being kind of against it because it freaks them out. It freaks me out, to be honest. I'm, there's a reason why I'm not a Pentecostal because I just think there's so many things that can kind of go wrong with that. But I don't have anything against people who worship that way. But what I was able to do is just kind of look at history and say, listen, this is what happened historically. This is how people responded that turned out healthy and good. This is how people responded that turned out healthy and wrong. So you make a choice. Do you want to respond like these folks did in history, or do you want to respond like these folks did in history? And for the church, to give the church credit, they chose to respond in the healthy way. The church got healthy, and I was there for 14 years. And I wouldn't have been there for 14 years if it remained in that just critically dysfunctional place. The only problem was, if you'll find with any conflict, if you're going to really have full resolution, both sides have to be willing to be humble, and both sides have to be willing to, to really look at their motivations and what is motivating them, and be willing to come into a place of agreement. And it's, that's a very difficult thing for the person who's in, who's in charge of one of the other sides, because it's going to mean that their influence has to diminish. And of course, that becomes one of the biggest barriers in conflict and church resolution of conflict is pride. People that do not want their influence to diminish. Even if they feel like they're wrong, they kind of even look at their side of uh, the argument they're on and they go, well, this wasn't very smart. I shouldn't really be on this side. But they have that influence and people love that influence. Some people love that influence and they don't want it to diminish. And so to be honest with you, most conflict doesn't really resolve very, very clean. It, you know, there, there's some that do kind of low-grade stuff, but big fights, big conflict, it's pretty tough. And Jesus knew that. I think it's interesting that Jesus knew that there would be a time within this church that he is establishing that is based upon his sacrifice, that's going to be filled with his spirit. He knows there's going to be conflict because he knows who we are. 
And he doesn't say that these two people are like, one's not a Christian and the other one is. He says this, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So Jesus acknowledges that this is a conflict between two people who are in brotherhood or in relationship in Christ. Brother or sister, sister in Christ, sister against each other, whatever. He says, if he's listened to you, you've won your brother over. That's great. If he will not listen, take two or three others along so that in every matter it may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So well, how does Jesus begin? He begins by saying, keep the conflict as small as possible. If this is just between the two of you, just go by yourself. So no one else has to be involved. This doesn't have to be a big deal. Just be honest with each other and get it worked out. And I would say at IBCD, one of the amazing things about this church, and you've heard me say it before, but I think it needs to be said over and over and over again because it could become an issue, is that, you know, we have very little in common. We don't have a lot of our cultures in common. We don't even have a lot of, we have some values in common, but not all of our values are in common. But the one thing we have in common is Christ. And as long as we keep Christ in the center of all that we do, then we will be, and we don't allow ourselves to be easily offended, because some folks are like, thin-skinned, man. You just look at, them, look at them funny, and they'll say, you know, why were you, you know, why were you attacking me? Even now, like from the pulpit, sometimes I get, uh, I'll be preaching along, and I'm not really looking at any one of you in particular. It looks like I am because I'm trained to make eye contact, but I'm not really looking at any of you in particular, but sometimes I'll say something, and someone will say, why were you looking at me when you said that? And yeah, and, and, and I'm always, in my mind, what I want to respond is, why do you think I was looking at you? You know, why are you feeling guilty about this? But, you know, of course, I'm no, I don't like conflict, so I'll say something like, oh, I wasn't really looking at you, which I wasn't. But that sin in them is like, mm. people can be thin-skinned. At IBCD, you have to be thick-skinned. You can't allow yourself to be offended easily because if you do, you will find yourself offended all over the place because we have different values, different cultures, different ways of expressing ourselves. But Jesus says, if it's just between the two of you, keep it on the download. Just take care of it between the two of you if possible. And then he says, if he won't listen, take two or three others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I got to tell you, in my experience with conflict, having witnesses be there and be present in the conversation has been extremely helpful. During my time at IBCD here, uh, we've had elders and when I came out of Oregon, we, uh, Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches anyway in the U.S., very, very rarely have elders. And uh, it's just the pastor is the elder, and then the deacons are kind of a mix of elders and deacons. It's really kind of a mess. They're starting to, to go back to a more biblical mode, but I never really worked with elders until I came to IBCD. And I got to tell you, having people that can be witnesses to the conversation is extremely helpful. Because one... They can keep you, on the leader, on track if the conflict is between, you know, a leader in the church and someone else. And generally, these kinds of conflicts taking place is between me and someone that's upset with me. The elders are very helpful because they can tell me where I'm wrong because they're on the outside looking in. And they can also tell me, you know, am I just making this up? Am I kind of nuts about this? And then they can also speak into the life of the person, too, who's also in conflict. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. If you have a conflict between a man and a woman, it's good for one of those witnesses to be, you know, one's of one gender, one is the other. Because women and men, some just sometimes the way we're wired, see the world differently. We have different priorities. We, have, we respond differently to uh, relational issues. 
And so it's good to have a, a wider view. It's a great thing to have witnesses. And then he goes on to say this. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And these next, th next three verses are in the context of conflict, but we have a tendency in the church to pull these out and have a whole different way of interpreting this. But these next three verses are within the context, 18, 19, or 20, within the context of conflict. It says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Does that sound familiar? should. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. So these are some intriguing verses because oftentimes we just, we, as Christians, we do the whole formula of going by yourself, bringing witnesses, then coming before the church, and we kind of end it there. But actually, the teaching of Jesus then brings along verses 17, uh, 18, 19, and 20. And I find them intriguing. 17 is an intriguing one because it makes me wonder what exactly Jesus is expecting when he says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What does Jesus want from us? I think on one hand, it seems like it's pretty clear that it's almost like a shunning. You know, you treat them like you would someone that just doesn't know, uh, has decided to walk in sin and stay in sin. But then you look at the way Jesus actually treated tax collectors, the way Jesus actually treated pagans. He was very embracing. You know, he would go to them with hope. But the hope was the hope found in him. I'm not quite sure what, what we're, how we're supposed to respond uh, to this, to be honest with you. Is it, is it the kind of the shunning thing, just like treat them like they're not even part of the church? Or do you go treat them like Jesus treated a tax collector, which was to find Zacchaeus, for example, who everyone hated on the fringes of society, and say, come on down, today I'm going to dine with you. Or how he treated the prostitutes, again, on the, on the fringes of society, who allowed the prostitutes to have interaction like by cleaning his feet, forgiving them of their sins, things like that. So what is it that he wants? I look at it personally as we should treat them kind of as a mix. One, you have to realize that maybe they are not in step with the church. But that doesn't mean that we desert them. And I know it's, it's a, I've tried, and I've tried this in real life. <laughs> I, don't, I probably approached it wrong, and I know I probably did, but I don't know how else to approach it. But one time there was a, a, a sister in the faith that was, did this, she just got mad and left. And I went and I spoke with her and I said, and I came around to this thing, listen, can I tell you about the hope that really is Jesus Christ? Whoa. Who are you to tell me anything about Jesus Christ? I've been a Christian ever since. Blah, 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 blah. It didn't go well. Because the assumption in that is that she's not a Christian or she doesn't know Jesus. And I don't know how else to, to approach that, but... If you have any big ideas, let me know. And then I'll send you into the conflict. <laughs> but then he says this interesting thing on, on, on verse 18 here. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it, it, earlier in chapter 16 of Matthew, when Jesus was working with the, the Gentiles, and, and uh, after working with the Gentiles for quite a long time, he asks the disciples, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some say you're uh, John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. And then he asks them, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? 
And then, of course, this is Simon Peter's great confession. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. We talked about that a couple, about a month ago, two months ago. I will give you the keys to, of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we talked about that in the context that this was being, this first time that this concept of the keys of the kingdom came up, he's talking about the context would seem to be that he's unlocking, that Peter will be the one that unlocks the barrier between Jew and Gentile when it comes to salvation through Jesus Christ, which Peter does. Peter is the first one that goes into the home of a Roman centurion that has a vision from God that he should go fetch Peter, and Peter's going to tell him, who the true God is. That guy was named Cornelius. And so Peter definitely was the one that unlocked that barrier, unlocked that door. Now the Apostle Paul was the one that walked through that door, and he becomes known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. But it's Peter that opens it. Well, in that same way, if you look at this passage today, you know, the kingdom keys are plural. And so this other one says, you know, if your brother sins against you, go show him your fault. We just read through that. And then he gets down to verse 18. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And the idea is that when it comes to this place of, of conflict, if the person is completely unwilling to make any kind of reconciliation or movement toward reconciliation that is realistic, because... I tell you what, you get into these things, you'll find all kinds of excuses and people running around circles and arguments that are circular. And it's, it's not a, I hate being in this place, to be honest with you. It's a very difficult place. But he says at some point, you know, as the church, if a person is going to continue to stay in sin, we have the right to make some decisions about their continued involvement in the church. And if they are going to be unrepentant in their involvement, we have the right to bind, to bind or to loose, which is to say we have the right as believers to say this person is not going to be part of the fellowship because what they bring into it is sin, unrepentant sin. There's a difference between repentant sin and unrepentant sin and consciously bringing in division. And we can say we have the authority, Jesus gives it to us, to lock or unlock this. And part of what we have the right to lock is to say this person's no longer part of the, this church body but also what we have the right to lock or unlock is the place of reconciliation, is the place of trying to work it out. That's why Jesus gives us this formula. He wants us to work it out. He wants us to try and you know, work through these places where we are functionally dysfunctional. And so he says, you know, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And where two or three of you agree on something, it will be done. So the place that we're never allowed to be, though, regardless of the depth of the, of the conflict, is the place of unlove. And this is where it's hard. Because it's hard to love someone that's attacking you. Our human nature just doesn't want to embrace folks that are attacking us. And when we get into a place of conflict, our minds and emotions can get to the place that anything everyone says feels like an attack. So like this lady I was telling you about, hey, can I tell you a little bit about what, you, what it really means to be in Christ? Wow, she saw that as a very strong and cruel attack upon her personhood by questioning her faith. And I kind of get that. I, I, I totally get that, but that's not where I was coming from. I just don't know how else you would address 
someone as a pagan or tax collector without saying, do you know Christ? Because there's some folks in the church that don't know Christ. They've grown up, with, they've grown up in the church or they've come to the church and they're kind of, they kind of figure, okay, well, this makes some sense, but that real place of death to self and life in Christ, allowing themselves to be reformed into the very, so that the gifts of the Spirit flow out of their life, not the gifts, the fruits of the Spirit flow out of their life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's hard for some folks to get, those around, to get their head around it because they're afraid to die to self. And if you never die to self, then you're never really going to be alive in Christ. It's just the way it is. But we are never called into a place of unlove. And I have to admit, even I've gone through times with folks that I do just like anyone else. I'll say, I don't like them, but I love them. I love them in Jesus, but I don't like them. That's kind of, I think we all know that that's not really a very uh, in-depth, truthful statement from the heart. That's just Christianese way of skating around the fact that I really don't like this person. And I really don't want anything to do with them. They've caused me so much hurt, I just would rather never see them again. But I love them. That just doesn't make sense, right? And we try to make it make sense. And I know some of you are like theologizing right now. No, but it couldn't mean this. Jesus loves a sinner, even though the sinner doesn't love him. Yeah, I'm not Jesus. My emotions and your emotion gets in the way, and we have to be willing to deal with that. And that comes to that place of forgiveness. We're going to talk about forgiveness next week. So we're going to have another nice, heavy sermon next week talking about forgiving and how our forgiveness is directly connected to how much we're willing to forgive. And that should terrify all of us. If it weren't for the grace of God, we would be completely without hope. Because the truth is, it's hard to forgive, too. And it's, I'm always kind of amazed in my, in my time walking as a Christian, I'm amazed at the things that people won't forgive, which can be somewhat minor, somewhat petty, and they just won't forgive it. And then I'm amazed at what people can forgive, which to me is like, whoa, you can forgive that? I mean, there's forgiving, and then there's forgiving. But practically speaking, this is a tough thing. And Jesus knows it. He knows it. So he gives us this formula that walks to a place of reconciliation, but it also ends up being right out the door, too. If a person's not willing to reconcile, you bring them to the church. If they won't listen to the church, you treat them as a tax collector or a pagan, and the idea is that they're outside of that fellowship. Now, practically speaking, many of you work in business. You know this. There are dozens of courses and seminars, secular as well as religious, that deal with conflict. And in my lifetime as a pastor, I've probably gone through six or seven of these things because it's just a prevalent reality within the church. And the thing that's in common in all of them is, is something akin to this. If both sides are willing to listen to whatever the offense was as the other person perceived it, not as it was meant, but as it is perceived because perception is a person's reality, and if both sides are willing to humbly seek forgiveness and this humility and forgiveness flows both ways, then there is really nothing that can't be worked through. And I've witnessed this. I've witnessed some things that you would think would be just a total break in the relationship. But because both of them are willing to listen to the others. By the way, this is why you should never try to resolve conflict through a tweet or through email or through any kind of text. 
Because you can't hear the tone in that. And so like, you might text something like, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I'd really like us to be able to work this out. If someone's angry with you, and I've told you, you, you re- when you're angry or you're hurt, you tend to read things through those, that emotion. You read, well, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings. I really want to work it out. You know? And you're like, it's just a terrible way to try and work things out. Do not try and work things out through email, text, or Twitter. Social media is like the, the, the curse on our current generation, in my opinion. This is my humble opinion. And you can hear my tone, right? Social media is awful. It's good for giving information, but not emotion. And yet people try and do their emotional stuff over social media. It's a disaster. But if both sides are willing to listen to the offense, as the other person perceives it, because sometimes it's interesting to hear from folks how they perceive something you did. And then you can say, that is not at all what I meant by that. One time, I'll give you an example. We were at a church picnic, and this was here. And, uh, and we were at this park that's down here uh, by uh, Oberath. And we were just there, and there's a bunch of blankets and stuff. And the only place for me to, to find a place to sit, because we got there a bit late, was right in the middle of one of these blankets. And so if I was going to sit there and people were like, oh, sit here, sit here, sit here, it meant that I couldn't, I had to have my back to somebody because it's in the middle of the blanket, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not an angel that has the eyes all around their heads, you know, or the four faces and stuff. And there was someone that got so angry that I sat on this blanket and had my back to them, they left the church. You know, and this is the kind of stuff you just kind of go, what can you do about that, right? I didn't mean to insult them. It was just the physical reality that I can't move very well because my back is, is very stiff. Like if new people are, like, are here, if you've noticed and they're saying there, I can't turn around and see them. I can't. I can't physically turn around and look. So when I'm not turning around, it's not because I don't care that there's new people or I don't care to see what they look like. I can't unless I stand up, turn around, and then that's awkward. You're wondering, what's, what's he doing? Right? So there's no perceived, there's no meant offense, but there's a perceived offense. And if you're willing to talk with someone who has offended you, and this is one reason why it's the offended that goes, is to the person that's sinned against them or offended them, because that person may not even know that they've offended you. They may not have any idea that this thing was offensive to you. And so you have to go point it out. And if you point it out and you realize that's never what it was meant, it wasn't meant to be offensive, then you let it go. And if you can't let it go, then that speaks more to you than it speaks to the one who offended you. If both sides are willing to listen to what happened, not, was, not just how it was meant, but how it was perceived, and then you can work through the perception, there's nothing that can be worked out. But if one side doesn't want to have humility, if one side doesn't really want to work things out, if one side just is like, nope, I was right, purely right, 100%, nothing, even the simplest thing won't get worked out. It takes humility. It takes a genuine love. And IBCD, some of you know who've been here for a while, we've survived some pretty big storms. A lot of that is because, and this is not a bad thing, but a lot of it is because folks who come here tend to be A-type personalities. 
know, they're successful in business or they're like, they're these kind of people who are these students who are willing to take this huge chance to leave their country, come to another country that they don't even know the language in order to get their bachelor's and master's and PhDs. I mean, these are driven people. These are A-type personalities. And A-type personalities sometimes get into conflict. And that's okay, as long as we are willing to love through it. And we've had our storms, but we've also had our resolutions. And if we keep our eyes on Christ, as I told you in the beginning here, keep your eyes on Christ, have a thick skin, and trust and believe that no one is out to actually hurt you, even if you have been hurt, no one's meaning to, then there's nothing that we can't survive. And this is one of the miracles of IBCD. I don't know if, you know, when you're newer here or if you've been here for a while, if you really appreciate and you look around and realize our diversity, culturally, uh, racially, all the different diversity that we have here at IBCD has been one of the most beautiful things about the church because those who understand where I'm coming from here have chosen not to be easily offended and they've chosen to love each other and to get to know each other cross-culturally. And it has led to this place being a beautiful place. And we want it to stay beautiful. We have our storms because we're human, because we're sinful. But in Christ, there's some amazing things about this church. And conflict is going to be part of our church life. It just is. How we deal with it, though, becomes our choice as believers. And I believe if we deal with it in a Christ-like way, we not only grow to glorify Christ, but we can also grow closer together in trusting one another when we understand where we're really coming from and what we really want in our relationships with Christ and with each other. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the foresight, which shouldn't be surprising given who you are, but the foresight to, even before the church was formed, tell us how to deal with conflict within the body of Christ. And there's also several examples just within the disciples of how you help them deal with their own conflicts going on, and even conflicts people had with you. So Lord, we pray that your spirit, you know, we, there is one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, one Lord overall. That's a scriptural truth, and we pray that that unity which is made possible by your death, burial, and resurrection and the gift of your Holy Spirit, something we celebrate today in communion. We pray that we will hold that close and that this will be the priority we have whenever we go into places of hurt or the places of offense or perceived offense, be it between husband and wife, be it between sister and sister like Utica and Schenectady or between brother and brother like Paul and Barnabas. Wherever it is, May we be able to approach it in such a way that gives you glory and allows us to grow, that we can mature emotionally and spiritually through difficult times. And Lord, as we uh, continue moving through this time of our, our existence, this time of life on earth, may we become the people that you say blessed, which are the peacemakers, not the ones who fake peace by pretending there is no conflict, but the ones who make peace by entering into it with humility and love, and seeking your glory. And we pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.